This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 13th, 2016, and this is episode 1765 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. A guest that's been with us before named Peter McCoy is returning. Peter is the mushroom man. He is the guy that we has, has uh, I believe, coined the phrase radical mycology as a new book out uh, on radical mycology. What is radical mycology? We'll find out about all that and more today. We're going to talk about fungi today. Yes, mushrooms, fungi, mycorrhizal fungi, stuff that lives in the soil, stuff that lives inside plants, not just the stuff that you know we can use to uh, saute with butter and onions or have happy dreams, all different types of fungi. We're going to talk about some ecology today ecological significance of the fungal kingdom. Don't worry, it will apply to modern survivalism, I promise you. Uh, some of the ways that we can disrupt the fungi communities in our soil and screw up our plants. Uh, we're going to talk about cultivating, cultivating mycorrhizal fungi, which is the soil fungi, the stuff that actually creates these networks in our soil and improves the resilience of our land. We're going to, yes, talk about growing mushrooms and how you might establish a mushroom farm. I actually really want to talk to... Peter, a lot about that. I've worked really hard to get mushrooms growing here, and I've had some success, but limited. And, and I believe that maybe the, the better way to go about it is to do things like growing them in tubs of wood chips and stuff like that. And I'll talk to him about that today because it, it's something I definitely like having in my diet. I love mushrooms. I, I know some mushrooms is one of those love hate things. There's generally not a lot of people out there that are like, you know, they're okay. Usually people are like, I love them, I hate them, one or the other, you know. And uh, But they have incredible value to us, not just in their ecological functions, but medicinally. And they're also a hell of a cash crop if you, if you, if you skin growing them the right way. Um, you know, I, we do a lot of business right now with restaurants, with our duck eggs. And the, the farm to, to, to plate, the farm to fork movement, all of these things, farm to table, restaurants... That's really, really hot right now. And uh, one of the things that you can just about bet that any one of those places would be interested in is mushrooms. There's almost inevitably on in every restaurant you go to, from chains to small places and everything in between, something on the menu with mushrooms there. And you're talking about a, a, an item that they usually, usually use in a small amount. And that means that you can charge a premium and it's okay. Right, you know that that's that's how we are with some of the restaurants we sell to. We're selling to them at eight bucks a dozen. They don't even blink because they're putting a, you know a single egg onto a dish that's, that's plated up and sold for fourteen, eighteen dollars or more. So they're not really worried about that component, that one component of the dish. I think mushrooms have an, an opportunity like that as well. So I see in in all of the stuff that we're going to talk about today with Peter an opportunity not just to understand how fungi actually affect us and all of the wonderful things we can do if we would begin to truly understand fungi and their relationships. Um, I, I've been blown away at some of the things that can be done with fungi. Paul Stamets has built basically a beehive out of fungi that pretty much eliminates varroa mites and, and quite a few other problems that bees have. So we're going to be talking about all of that type of stuff and more today. Before we do, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year... 
1765, guys. We are coming up to that time in history. And something very cool was pointed out to me today that I'll announce. If I do a show every day, every weekday, like I always do, I have no kind of interruptions or anything from now until the 4th of July... And if I do a show on the 4th of July, which I never do, but this year I'm, I'm going to, then the survival podcast episode for the 4th of July is going to be 1776. How cool is that? Anyway, we're away from that yet. We are in 1765 right now. The intolerable, the intolerable Acts of the Sons of Liberty, and I also have a legal expert declares that magic exists, and I have Little Goody Two-Shoes and the Gods of copy Copybook Heading. Uh, I'm going to read The Intolerable Acts and the Sons of Liberty today. And I want to tell you something before I do. Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us, emailed me today, and his email said, Hey, some of the stuff that I'm going to be covering as we go through the revolutionary years are going to make our founders not look like such heroes. In fact, some of it might make them look like real, well, assholes. If you want it to be softer, you need to either pick the ones that are not on the revolution or have someone else do them. And I said, that is not what I want at all. I want you to keep doing what you're doing. History is supposed to be a record of what we most likely believe occurred. And we should not be revising it because it makes us uncomfortable. So there'll be a little bit of that in today's. It will get worse, I promise you. The Intolerable Acts and the Sons of Liberty... The intelligent are not always wise. The British Parliament wants to offset expenses defending the American colonies, but the American colonists are wondering what the British are defending them from. The Sugar Act is partly paying for garrisoning British troops. The Quartering Act is forcing the colonists to feed and house the troops. This is called billeting since civilian household is served with a bill of demand. But the word billet means a lodging assignment in the modern day. The Stamp Act requires that all printed materials carry a revenue stamp certifying that it, the proper tax has been paid on each item. This is a modern equivalent of a tax stamp applied to every pack of cigarettes. These and other acts of Parliament do not go over well in the colonies. That is why they are called the intolerable acts. The colonists shout, no taxation without representation, but realistically, what can they do about it? My take by Alex Shrug. The committees of correspondence and the Sons of Liberty are what they could do about it. They work through intimidation, loyalty oaths, and mob violence, so anyone with romantic notions about heroes donning three-cornered hats and running to the sound of the guns can turn away now. This is not pretty. The Committee of Correspondence were the organizers and communicators, notifying people of the abuses of the British. As the British squeezed harder against the American colonists, a shadow government was formed called the Committees of Safety that nudged British loyalists out of leadership roles, often with a hard shove. This avoided a general bloodbath. By 1775, the committees became local governments, according to historian T.H. Breen. For ordinary people, they were community forums where personal loyalties were revealed, tested, and occasionally punished. Serving on a committee of safety was certainly not an activity for the faint of heart. Resistance groups such as the Sons of Liberty were also members of these committees. They used hot pine tar and feathers to convince British loyalists of the errors of their ways. Hot pine tar is about 130 degrees, the temperature of hot water from a faucet. Some notable members were Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, and Paul Revere. The Disney film about Johnny Treisman and the Sons of Liberty is a figment of one's imagination. Nice songs, though. Yeah, um, I've mentioned several times there's a mini-series. I think HBO is the one that put it out. Uh, my wife bought it for me for Christmas one year called John Adams. 
And it, it tells the story of John Adams through this period of time, and it certainly shows a scene where one uh, loyalist is dragged off of a ship, a captain of a ship. It's either the captain or a, a tax assessor on the ship. I'm not sure which one it is. It's a, it's a tax assessor that goes on the ship to collect a tax, I believe. And uh, he's he's stripped naked and covered with hot tar and then rode on a donkey, I believe. It was either a donkey or a horse with feathers on him. And that type of thing did happen. It's it's horrific. And it, it's not the way we want to think of our founders. But on some levels, it is what our founders did. Now, here's my, my take on this, though, another way. What do you think these men would be doing today? Really? I mean, there were these taxes that were reasonably small percentages on goods and services. Now, the quartering of troops, can you imagine that? Hey, hey, how you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Sergeant Dan, you know, and these are my... Uh, The rest of my squad will be sleeping at your house. You'll be feeding and clothing us. Here's a billet, uh, and uh, we need a place to stay. Yeah, that was a pretty big, insufferable thing. But the taxes, you know, how many people do you think really were affected by that? And it was probably the wealthier people because they had more space and food and stuff, right, to be able to do that with. So these the little taxes. So if you notice, it's only on transactions. They're basically sales taxes, So it's not on income. It's not on property. How do you think they would respond to what we have today? You know what I paid in property taxes last year? About $4,000 on a house assessed at $200,000. So 2% of my property is taxed annually. My property that I worked hard for is taxed. It's insane. We punish productivity in this country today. If you add up all the taxes the average American pays, we're, we're getting close to tax freedom day right now, are we not? You work at four months out of the year for the government, one form or another, local, state, county, federal. What do you think our founders would do today? I'd love to hear your thoughts about that in today's show notes. See, rather than just looking at all of the you know things that our founders did that weren't quite kosher, I think that maybe we, we learned something here and why our government doesn't really want to talk about these things. Maybe it's not just to sell us on the ideal that, you know, our, our you know, our nation is this 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 bastion of good, but maybe they don't really want us to think about what the people that founded this nation were willing to do for their own freedom and for the freedom of their kinsmen. With that knocked out, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. If you're like me, you're always seeking to learn more about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and personal liberty. Well, my go-to source of information for all of those things, for over two decades, has been Backwoods Home Magazine, with information on everything from food preservation to alternative energy to choosing the right firearm and more. You will find it all from some of the best people you will ever meet. Check them out at BackwoodsHome.com. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Okay, with that, before we bring Peter on, just one more reminder. The polls are open, and not the Ask Clown Circus polls. The polls for the Tuesday shows, if you want a voice in what comes on the Survival Podcast, 
for next month on the Tuesday shows, get over to the survivalpodcast.com. Check out the show notes for today's show, and you'll see a link there to go vote on that. And uh, voting has begun in earnest. There are ten subjects to be chosen for five days, so half of them will win. They'll be done in the order that they finish. We've got some good ones there for you. With that, I want to say, hey, Peter, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Uh, hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I got you on today to talk about uh, fungi and mushrooms and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, you have been on the show before. We get new listeners all the time, so there's probably a lot of people out there that don't know who Peter McCoy is. So can you give us kind of some background and help the audience kind of connect with you on a personal level, kind of go back before you were in this world of fungi and how you kind of came into be, uh, came to do what you're doing now? Uh, yeah, no, I'm happy to, um, it's kind of been a little bit of a windy road, but, uh, it's been great how it's worked out. Um, I got interested in, in, uh, mushrooms and fungi back in, uh, the nineties when I was a teenager. And at the time I didn't know anybody that was interested in it. It was very much, uh, kind of a taboo or just, um, not a very popular topic. And the internet wasn't really around, and it's just something I picked up um, sort of on the side. My my brother actually told me that you could grow mushrooms randomly, and that just piqued my interest because it sounded strange <clears throat> and also difficult. And I kind of just, those are the kinds of things I'm interested in. Um, so I just read books from the library and tried to cultivate when I was younger and failed a bunch and didn't have anybody to give me any advice. Um, and as the years progressed, I just stuck with it and kept trying occasionally reading books. And then eventually when I finally went to college, um, I met a couple friends and one in particular who shared not only my interest in mycology, um, the science of fungi, but also the, what I saw at the time and still see as its value for, um, supporting any kind of, you know, um, sustainable, holistic, um, lifestyle or even environmental movements or social movements. Cause there's so many applications of mycology that are so beneficial that people are picking up on, of course, nowadays, but back then it was still a pretty new concept. And um, I wrote a pamphlet uh, about eight years ago talking about these things called radical mycology and didn't think anybody would read it. Turned out it was pretty popular. I sold thousands of them, and that led me and my friend to holding an event called the Radical Mycology Convergence about six years ago uh, where we taught a lot of our knowledge for free, and that was also unprecedented because... Um, mycology is pretty inaccessible and we were really focusing on cultivation and mycoremediation, how fungi can clean up pollution, something people were interested in and things just kind of progressed. I started teaching more and more, um, sort of from there. And then two years ago I did a crowdfunding campaign to fund, uh, turning my pamphlet into a whole book. And just a couple months ago, I finally released that book. Um, and it turned out to be a pretty big one. So now I teach mycology pretty much full time, um, or in different ways, I guess I, and I work with it and I've taught cultivation courses around the country and I'll be teaching a lot more stuff this year. You know, you mentioned accessibility and I think it's probably more accessible than it's ever been at this point. There's all types of how to videos and things like that, but there is always been kind of this air of secrecy around from those that know in the world of, 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 of fungi. Right. And I mean, down to like when I was a kid, we used to go out and um, harvest mataki uh, mushrooms, the, the hand of the woods, uh, ram's heads are also called. And boy, you didn't give away where your your hunting grounds were, and that was just harvesting wild mushrooms. And there always did seem to be to me like the people that really knew what they were doing weren't very forthcoming with what they were doing. 
Oh yeah. I mean the hunting spot, I mean, I think that's just, that's a probably global phenomenon, you know, there, sure. everybody wants to keep their, their secret, um, especially when it's a good spot, you know, cause it produces year rent every year, like clockwork and you don't want your friends getting there before you do. Um, <laughs> but even, but especially, um, with the cultivation end, that's where it's been really hard as well. Um, and almost in this way where you don't see that in a lot of other fields of, um, agriculture or horticulture, things like that. I mean, sure people have their 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 secrets and sort of some of their some of their trade secrets but with mycology and mushroom cultivation it's a it's a pretty uh it was a very common phenomenon for much of the 20th century that you would try to ask anybody about how to grow mushrooms a farmer a professional farmer and they would either give you misleading information or just would straight out tell you they weren't going to tell you because it took them a very long time to learn it um because the books were not very accessible it's a lot of trial and error you have to pretty much custom build everything. Um, so to, to just come in and try to copy somebody's whole process, I mean, that's sort of um, summarizing, you know, perhaps 10 years of, of research and development. But since the internet came out, I mean, my generation, you know, and everybody else is so lucky to, to now be able to look all these things up and be able to, to get, you know, wealth of information pretty easily. Um, and I've, I've taken a lot of that, what's on the internet, also tons of reading, a lot of obscure books and textbooks, and also my experiences and many other people's experiences and put them into my book just to finally overcome that hurdle once and for all. Um, the, the secret hunting grounds, I mean, you'll never get, you never no, get that information. I don't even live there anymore and I won't tell you where it is. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's human nature to a degree. And my family still, you know, gathers at that location and they get what they need for themselves and they make a small income off of that as well. So that's, but I was, you know, the reason I was even pointing to that is because it was kind of like from one end to the spectrum to the other. And it seems like now we're in this much more open source environment and there's a lot more accessibility of information and things like your book, uh, which I've just ordered a copy by the way, because I was like, I didn't even know you'd finally release that. Um, until I looked at my, my thing for today, for today's show, and it looks fantastic. It, and you can tell just by the amount of information and how much work must have went into it. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, you know, it's it, for me. I'm very much a believer in the the open source ethos, and you know, times are changing, and it just it is such a valuable science, such so many valuable skills that um, you know, I'm so excited to see what people do with the information and how the science advances. Because something that people might not realize is one, mycology is one of the youngest natural sciences. It's only about a hundred years old, and really, our skills of cultivation has become pretty easy really in home scalable, um, especially kind of the lab type stuff in just the last 10 years. And a lot of that has still just been on the internet. Nobody, unless you really looked for it, knew that that was um, the case. Most people still think it's really hard to grow mushrooms. Once you overcome that hurdle of sort of learning those skills, there's so many applications, so much potential for the science to improve our lives and landscapes, um, that I think everybody needs to know about it. So um, yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time putting, putting the book together, trying to really give a full package and, um, yeah, I'm just excited to see what people do. You know, I, I saw you, uh, and Paul Stamets, uh, not this year, but last year at Permaculture Voices. And I was kind of blown away at the, the actual role of, of fungi in the, the ecosystems of the world. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the ecological significance of the, the entire kingdom of fungi? Definitely. I mean, and that's, it's such a huge, uh, 
you know, knowledge point to, to absorb for anybody interested in permaculture, especially because fungi are usually the most common missing function, um, from any permaculture system or anything like that. Um, and fungi, in my opinion, are central to all ecological roles. Um, so sort of simply put, the way that I summarize it is that they are incredibly critical to nutrient cycling, um, and also ensuring species succession, um, and they do that in a lot of subtle ways. So there's fungi that live inside of plants. These are called endophytic fungi. They literally permeate, they say 100% of plants now used to be conser- more conservative than that. Now they accept that pretty much every plant is filled with fungi. Um, hundreds or thousands of, you know, tens of thousands of different species could be inside a single plant. Um, adding to its, you know, molecular makeup and medicinal output, but also protecting the plant in many ways, incurring drought resistance, heat resistance, um, so many benefits, disease resistance, of course. And then there's soil fungi. Your, re- your listeners probably know a lot about them. I talked about them last time. Mycorrhizal fungi. Um, they do a lot in the soil connecting plants, but really protecting the plant roots from disease, um, increasing plant growth. And in ecologically, they, they actually, um, in some habitats, they're considered the drivers of the whole environment. They are the ones the same mycorrhizal fungi are actually the prime, can be the primary decomposers of the whole environment. This is like in tundras and heathlands, um, not necessarily a normal environment, but they are decomposing everything pretty much and at the same time redistributing those nutrients around. So they're basically masterminding the whole scenario for, you know, hectares and hectares. Um, there's also a common soil fungus called, genus called trichoderma. It's a pretty common olive green mold that you can get on foods and things like that. And it's actually a really important uh, check and balance in the soil web. And there's a lot of protocols. Uh, you listeners can look, just look up trichoderma cultivation. Um, I talk about it in my book, but it's pretty easy to find online. And you basically just go- grow a mold and put that in your ground. And so it's not really a mycorrhizal fungus, but you can apply it to root zones, and it defends against disease. There's tons of studies with these fungi. Um, and that was actually something I was surprised to learn about. I hadn't really heard that. And... In the mushroom world, you actually consider trichoderma your enemy because it can attack mushroom mycelium. So it's sort of this, there's a little bit of irony there. Um, and then the decomposing fungi, the ones that we commonly cultivate, they're, you know, incredibly important for nutrient cycling, of course, breaking things down. They are the, the big heavy hitters with breaking down, especially wood and things that bacteria can't, can't deal with. Um, it's very likely that, that fungi turn lignin into humic acids. Um, there, you know, we don't have, we don't have proof of that, but it seems pretty strongly correlated that fungi are basically what create humic acids. So they're the ones creating the humus and creating the topsoil. And then we also have what are called brown rot fungi that leave sort of the crumbly, uh, cubicle looking pieces of wood you might see rotting in the woods. And that material is actually really important as a nutrient sponge and it holds a lot of roots and nitrogen fixers and microbes and insects. Um, so that actually, um, has its own ecological niche that's often very op- commonly overlooked. And then even the, what we ca- often call parasitic fungi, um, the way that I think about those, I like to call those sort of like the vocal fungi because really when you look at their role, they're often, you know, that's how fungi are often negatively associated, especially in ecological studies or environmental classes and things like that, environmental studies classes. But really they show up in, in environments where the system is out of balance in essence whether that's in, say, like a monocrop setting where you have obviously a huge niche that's just waiting to be sort of taken advantage of, and fungi will do that to reset the scales and create more succession and greater, a greater change in the long run if, if left uh, to do what they do. But even in the forest where, you, where there's pretty good balance and dynamics, 
they're the ones coming in, often clearing out the disease trees and things that have been struck by lightning or broken. And so they feel that they sort of take over that tree, but often in the long run, they're, it's protecting the long-term uh, health of the forest by clearing out the disease and making sure it doesn't spread. So I like to think of those fungi as sort of stewarding the environment in the long term and say the decomposers, the endophytes, the mycorrhizae, more taking care of things in the short term. And there's this wonderful paper that's out there called Mycology, a Neglected Megascience that really just points these things out and talks about how, you know, along with our human applications, which which I'm sure we'll get to, just this ecological, these ecological roles are so undervalued and, and um, unaddressed, yet so incredibly significant. Um, it's actually sort of this problem in mycology that we need more people aware of it, um, up to snuff and in learning it and studying it. Very, very cool. And with all of this, inevitably, I believe that some of the problems that we have in agriculture is because we disrupt the fungi in the soil. We, 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 we damage that relationship and it, it's so critical. What are some ways that that occurs. I mean, obviously, row cropping and plowing things to nothing is but dust. But I think even in a lot of situations where people don't don't see themselves as doing destructive agriculture, they may be causing problems with the fungi networks. Right. Well, and then even over fertilizing can even if you practice no tilling, um, the fungi can come back in just a year or two. Um, depending on how disturbed the soil was, but if you over fertilize, especially with phosphorus. Um, the plant plants will not accept mycorrhizal partners. Um, it's actually the the plant that sends it sort of the plant is the one that gives consent, if you will, to the to the fungus um, symbi symbiosing with it. And if the plant is being heavily fertilized, it doesn't need the fungus to help it out. So even if the mycorrhizae are there, and then you later come in and, and over fertilize, they can decouple. Um, so a good way to to minimize the impacts is to well, first, taking a sampling of the soil to see if mycorrhizae are present. There are soil labs that can test for the presence of mycorrhizal spores. Um, there are protocols for doing that pretty easily. Um, it takes a microscope and a little bit of skill, but it's basically sift out the, the soil, um, and then you just look at the, the remains, basically clay and spores under a microscope, and you can count them and get an average. That'll give you an idea of how many mycorrhizae are present. Um, you can even take those spores, those, those local ones, and uh, cultivate them, amplify them, and bring them back and sort of increase their numbers. Um, but generally, you know, that's it's good to stimulate and, and support. But in many ways, you know, just like any good permaculture food forest system, you almost won't let nature do its, do its course. The issue is that is a lot of the soils, of course, in our residential areas, or even some of the urban areas, have been heavily... Um, disturbed and so we need to kind of bring the fungi back initially and then let them be um thereafter and again that's um the, one of the best ways you know is to do that is to cultivate them especially local fungi because they've often adapt adapted to the local habitat and things like that very very cool um last time you were on the show you talked about actually cultivating mycorrhizal fungi can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Is there anything that you've you've got new on that or anything? Well, yeah. So, um, so there's there's two main groups of mycorrhizal fungi that um, are really important to have an awareness of. There's what are called the arbuscular mycorrhizae, and they don't form mushrooms. They just live in the soil, but they're um, ubiquitous around the world, and they connect 
they're called generalists. So they don't sort of specialize to any type of plant and they'll connect say dozens of species all together through a common mycelial network. Literally they're connecting all these roots together and sharing nutrients between them in the environment that happens in the forest really commonly in the fields, uh, but also in your farm and garden. If you, again, don't, don't till the soil or over fertilize it, they'll establish and do that. Um, so those fungi I talked about last time, there's a protocol from the Rodale Institute for mycorrhizal cultivation. Um, I adapted that in my book and sort of put it into different words, but it's still a good protocol. They spent a long time, many years with the USDA dialing that in. So I think it's, uh, you know, maybe you could put it the links and, um, it's also in the last show. So people can see that. Um, I think the, the next level up though is, as I was mentioning just a second ago, is that you can sort of quantify that and even do a more refined approach if you wanted to of so sampling the soil, um, screening it, really looking at what fungi are present, taking a spore count, then doing the cultivation methods from Rodell, and then maybe a year or two later resampling. And that way you can see if the numbers have increased. Um, you can kind of get a better idea of what's going on in the soil. It's a greater way to measure it and not just sort of wonder. Um, a lot of people I see in meat that work with mycorrhizal spores and inoculum and things, um, you know, they, they buy it, they apply it, but they often don't know if it's actually working and they don't know how to test for it. And, you know, maybe the plant does better. So that's obviously a nice visual, but it's a good to have another metric. Um, there are also methods for pulling, say, root, um, you know, sacrificing a plant and you can take its roots and stain them. Um, under a microscope and you can actually see the mycorrhizal structure in the spore and the, excuse me, the root cells. Um, so it's a little bit extra work, but that's another way to visualize and see that it's actually forming the symbiosis. It's another great way to test sort of the fertilizer limits. Um, you know, at what point will they stop associating if I over fertilize? So that's for more, a little bit more technical for folks if they want to do that. Um, and then there's the other group of of mycorrhizal fungi that people might be a little bit more aware of, which are the mushroom formers. Um, these are often called the ectomycorrhizal fungi. And um, to cultivate them is pretty simple. And we might have talked about it a little bit last time. Uh, what people will often talk about is, um, and some ideas that have been out there, is just simply say if you know a tree in your, your woodlot or in the nearby forest is associated with, say, chanterelles or some mushroom you really want to grow on your property, you could potentially grow, uh, plant a sapling or of a tree near that one of the same tree species, wait a year or two. Hopefully the, the association sort of transfers over to the sapling. Then you dig it up and move it to where you want it and yeah. keep your fingers crossed. And that could potentially work. Um, but I did a lot of research into looking into, but the, the, I guess the problem there with that is that people do that, but it often doesn't work. And chanterelles are one of these mushrooms everybody wishes they could cultivate. But we can't. And looking into the research, it's often because they isolate the mycelium from all the other microbes in the environment. And sure enough, um, there's incredibly complex dynamics. So meaning that it seems that my, uh, many of these mycorrhizal mushrooms, boletes, all these gourmet ones, aren't just one mushroom, one tree. It's one mushroom with a bunch of other fungi, a bunch of bacteria in the soil. It's incredibly complex dynamics. So if you're going to do that transplant process I just described, you know, certainly taking the soil from that same area, making a good compost tea um, with it. And then when you transplant the tree, you know, inoculate that soil with those other microbes um, and try to really bring in that whole soil flora to recreate the, that underground habitat. Um, there are more technical ways to cultivate fungi, and that's detailed in the book. But even something people could do pretty simply is if you want trees to establish pretty much all trees, especially all the cultivated ones and a lot of the uh, the lumber trees, 
they need their ectomycorrhizal mushroom forming partners to establish. They'll, they'll pretty much die without them. And so, um, most of the gourmet mushrooms, I, like I was sort of getting at, are harder to cultivate consistently. But there are certain species in the genera, um, Lacaria, Scleroderma, uh, Rhizopogon, um, and Pisilithus. Most of those genera are like puffballs. Most of them are, are not edible. Um, but they, they're, you can find these puffballs in the forest and they're usually literally a ball full of spores. They just pick it up and break it open. It's pretty incredible. And you can take that, dilute it in clay and use that as your, your root inoculum for the trees. And that's a really cheap, easy way to help your trees establish. Again, it won't produce edible mushrooms, um, per se. The lacarias are, they're not puffballs. They're actually little mushrooms and they are edible. Um, so that's an option. But again, all these other ones, they're, they're abundant. You find them. Um, so it's a great way to create a pretty cheap inoculum that will hopefully support um, any tree culture. Very, very cool. I, I remember those puffballs. When I lived in Pennsylvania, those things were everywhere. I, I don't think I've ever seen one in Texas. But, I mean, <laughs> Pennsylvania, everywhere. It was like if you were a kid, you know, you'd wait for one to get to where it was ready, and you could jump on it. And big, this big flying you know, cl- look like smoke of spores blowing out of it, but it makes sense you'd use that as an oculum. Um, yeah. One of the things I, a, a friend of mine recommends, Nick Ferguson, for people to do, and he's not into this the way you are, but he just kind of thinks, how do I do things on on the low cost, is you go into just woods around where you're at and you just get decomposing wood and you just make a big pile from all these different places you know, on your property somewhere and keep it moist and then just take crumbles and bits of that into your you know, into your soil whenever you're planting. And that way you're basically capture, capturing, you know, indigenous, you know, God knows what. I guess you could get some things you don't want to, but it, it does seem to work. Um, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to see, you know, what he's, you know, how he can measure that. Because my first thought is that by doing that, you're going to be cultivating the decomposing fungi, which typically uh, live above ground. Sure. Um, and they're not necessarily the mycorrhizal fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi... Um, you know, as their name implies, associated with roots, they kind of need to be in the soil. They can travel up to the surface, the soil surface. And there's some fungi that say you'll find their mycelium growing into the carcasses of animals or something like that on the soil surface and bringing those nutrients back to the plants, oh. um, which is pretty interesting. But they don't necessarily grow, you know, on their own in wood or something like that. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that he was trying to get mycorrhizal, just get fungal activity going on. I guess. Um, but anyway, well, even even there, I would say though, you know, and, and this is just something I always like to, um, you know, help people kind of conceptualize because if we don't understand the fungal ecology, you know, uh, it's you know I, I hate to, I hate to uh, perpetuate you know wrong information or something like that, and that's just this this concept even with like microremediation where people think we can take oyster mushrooms, which are these great decomposers, and put them into the soil uh, to break down say petroleum soaked soil. And that will work for a little bit, but eventually that's not the niche of that fungus, and it doesn't like to live in the soil. So it might live for a little while, but it probably won't live there for very long. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So what about this fungi you were talking about that lives inside of plants? That's 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 pretty radical. Yeah. Well, yeah, so endophytes, I mean, I think that's another big reason, kind of going back to your what you were saying earlier about um, plant diseases and monocropping issues and things like this. Not only are the mycorrhizae not, not present often and disturbed, et cetera, but what happens with wild plants is, you know, in many ways, um, every plant is a unique sort of quilt of different endophytic fungi. There are some endophytic fungi 
that are passed through the, the seeds. They actually travel inside the seed from one generation to the next. But there are many species that travel by wind and by insects and things. And then the, that gets carried, a little spore lands on this little tiny piece of the leaf and then grows and enters that way. And these assemblies inside of the plant change over time. So they're, of course, incredibly dynamic, incredibly diverse, um, very hard to measure. But, um, you know, and one of the ways I think about it is that probably every plant is relatively fine-tuned to their, to their exact niche, to their exact habitat, with their unique quilt of endophytes providing all these different types of benefits um, and effects. When you take the plants out of those um, environments where they don't get the the, the ambient endophytes on the spores, or excuse me, on the wind and on the insects, and into a different habitat or into a monocrop habitat, your endophytic diversity is probably going to decrease significantly. Um, and I think that that's going to have a huge impact on the plant health as well. And one that I think is, you know, as far as I've seen, not really been um, addressed. Um, there are studies in people trying to cultivate endophytes, ones that have been shown to, you know, provide significant drought tolerance, for example, and there are fungi that we see that do that um, pretty pretty incredibly so. But the, the concern there, of course, is, well, let's say we take this one endophytic fungus, we, we can cultivate it relatively easily, and you basically just spray it onto the plant, and it will grow and soak into the plant and grow inside the plant. But then you're influencing, you know, whatever nature's doing, however the nature is, is uh, modifying the endophytes, even in that monocrop setting. But also, that might not be an endophyte that commonly associates with that plant or you know, there's so many dynamics to it that we 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 don't hardly even know what we're doing um, at this point. But there is research going into it, so it's this sort of um, you know uh, shot in the dark at this point. But it's an interesting it's an interesting prospect, and I think just a, a thing to consider again about that difference between wild and cultivated plants. Gotcha. Um, can we talk about actually growing mushrooms for our own use? It's one of those things that I think. Sometimes people like buy these kits and all, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But that makes you kind of dependent on going back and buying another kit. You you, you talked about you know some maybe you can talk about some easy uh, mushrooms to start off with that we can actually produce, uh, eat, use in our homes, maybe trade with friends, that type of thing. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, I know that on the last show, and I'm sure you've talked about it a bunch, is the Kingstraferia mushroom is you know hands down sort of the go-to outdoor garden mushroom. Uh, tolerates heat and even drier conditions than most. So it's, you know, pretty much everybody who's never heard of that mushroom, if you're new to the show, um, I would definitely start there, get the Kingstraferia. It's, uh, it'll grow on fresh wood. It'll grow on old composted stuff. It has a huge appetite and will just kind of keep on growing if you, if you feed it. It's kind of this miraculous mushroom, pretty easy to, to maintain. Um, just keep it shady and moist and fed and it'll establish across your yard, hopefully pretty well. Um, uh, I'm sure a lot of people know about oyster mushrooms and that's because they are, they're popular for a reason or they're common for a reason, I guess. Um, they are tasty, they are delicious and actually pretty medicinal and actually pretty powerful remediators if, if we were to get into that, but they're common because they're one of the easiest indoor mushrooms to grow. Um, they too will grow on over 200 different agricultural wastes. So many mushroom farmers and even organic farmers or uh, vegetable farmers and things will grow them on straw because that's one of our most common and consistent agricultural wastes. But even in an urban environment, you can grow them on coffee and cardboard um, pretty easily. Um, you know, it's, if you wanted to go that route, uh, I would say that's probably one of the easiest, pretty much the dirt cheapest way to grow mushrooms and works. 
which is uh, the simplest protocol. The one I would recommend is getting a five-gallon bucket and drilling half-inch holes, about 15 to 20 of them equally spaced around the whole bucket, and then getting fresh, relatively fresh coffee grounds, ideally from that day, um, no more than two days old from your local coffee shop, and cardboard, and then the oyster mycelium. And that can come in a bunch of different ways. Um, you can order it online. Field and Forest is a, a reputable spawn producer, so you can get um, oyster mycelium there. They have a bunch of different what are called strains, kind of like cultivars. And they can, if you call them, they can walk you through which one's best for your temperature, range, and climate, and things like that. Um, but you could also get, say, an oyster from the store. And if you tore up that mushroom and onto some soaked cardboard, say, do this a week or two before actually doing the bucket, the mycelium might, or the mushroom might very well start growing on that cardboard um, and start digesting it. You just tear it up, excuse me, soak the cardboard, uh, drip dry it off, um, tear up the mushroom, roll it up inside the corrugations, and then maybe put it in like a little Tupperware thing so it doesn't dry out. The mushroom will come back to life, start digesting the cardboard, but that cardboard doesn't have a lot of nutrients, so you got to move it pretty quick into the coffee. So when you start making the, the bucket, basically you just make layers of, say, half an inch to an inch of coffee grounds, and then a layer or two of soaked cardboard, just hydrated cardboard, and then sprinkle on some of the broken cardboard or better yet the, the inoculum from or the, the stuff from uh, Field and Forest because you're going to get more mycelium that way. It's usually a lot more dense, a little bit more nutritious. But just layer that and then you lasagna all the way up the bucket, an inch of coffee grounds, a layer of cardboard, a little bit of fungus, uh, and just keep going till you're at the top. Um, you can pack it down a little bit, but you don't want to make the coffee super compressed and anaerobic because that can get um, contaminated and, and start to rot inside. And then put the lid on so it doesn't dry out. And then ideally, uh, depending on how much mycelium you use, sort of the amount of inoculum and the temperatures and a couple variables, hopefully the mycelium will grow through without any problem in a couple weeks. And say anywhere from two to maybe four or five weeks later, mushrooms will start to come out those holes all on their own as long as the temperature range is right. And then all you got to do is just mist them lightly with a little spray bottle um, so they don't dry out while they're maturing over the next couple of days. And, of course, you could build a little humidity tent, like a little plastic tent around it, keep that humid with some good airflow. Um, that's probably one of the easiest ways to get started. Most farmers, though, just because it's a little bit of work to get the coffee grounds or maybe not as consistent or things like this, most of them will deal with the straw just because it's easy to get and you can um, do big batches of it at a time. But the process is essentially the same. With straw, you would ferment it. Um, there's a protocol for that on the radical mycology site, or you, you could soak it in hot water, um, which is a little bit more labor-intensive. And then same thing, pack it into a bucket, pack it into a bag. Buckets are nice because they're stackable and reusable. Um, and just wait, and the mushrooms pop out, and you just keep them moist while they're fruiting and give them a lot of fresh air. Very cool. I mean, and so it can be simple, and then it can also be very, very complex, I guess, depending on what you're ordering. Yeah, I mean the, the or you're you're growing. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, even then, I mean, um, you know, it's we're at this really interesting cusp with mycology, and this is something that uh, I already sort of said, but I maybe want to just reiterate because it's such a huge point to me. Something I think about all the time is that humans have been cultivating plants for you know at least ten thousand years or so. We've been cultivating mushrooms for maybe about two, but really only technically for about you know in the lab style for about a hundred. And the home scalable stuff that we that we've just started to develop that's a lot more accessible is only about say ten years old, maybe a little bit more. So it's incredibly young, and and even 
you know, I'm coming up, uh, I'm about to release in hopefully next month or so, another protocol, a new protocol of what I think basically translates a lot of the technical process, a lot of the stuff that requires a lab and labor, um, into a very, very simple protocol that you can do in your kitchen and essentially get farm scale quality. Um, and, and I mean, I can give a little insight into what that looks like. Usually what, what you do with mushroom cultivation, why it's usually seen as so hard is because we, we cook up sugary, wet stuff that the mushroom likes, but then to fight off competition, we sterilize it. And because now it's sterile, we have to keep everything super clean so that no bacterial mold gets in to the container because it too will grow on these sugary, wet things. So that requires a lab. It requires the thing that blows the clean air at you, which is expensive and all these other protective measures. So the protocol that I'm basically going to be presenting that I, I it's in my book, but I also want to make a separate free video so people can just do that on their own. Um, is you take all these same materials, all the stuff the mushroom likes, it's sawdust, some bran, a little bit of grains, some, some gypsum for minerals, mix that up in certain ratios, get it a little bit wet, put it into a half gallon jar uh, all together, sterilize that, um, whether in a pressure cooker or in a bigger drum, if you want to start a small farm, um, a 55 gallon drum with a propane burner, pretty simple setup, sterilize it over a few hours with steam, and then uh, you use this liquid mycelium, this liquid inoculum that you can create, um, and then you inject that through the lid, and the mycelium grows through that. And what what you've done there, for anybody that's tried to do this stuff or has read about it, is you've essentially cut out all the lab work. You've done cut out all these pr transfers that you're supposed to do, um, but you still give, in the end, the, the mycelium, the mushroom, all the same nutrition that it needs, which is the underlying theme. And then it grows through that, and then you open the jar, and it'll just fruit out the top. Um, and you don't need a sterile place to, for it to incubate while it's growing because it's protected in the jar, et cetera. So that's my iteration on a theme. And these are just, it's just one of many breakthroughs that people are constantly developing. So, you know, and this is why I always encourage people to get into it because we don't know what's coming next. That's true. That's true. It does seem like it is getting easier. Mm -hmm. Um, so could you maybe you gave us two mushrooms that are really easy to start with. Could we talk maybe about maybe a couple other things that might be pretty easy to do? I, I've been told like lion's mane on logs is a pretty easy one, stuff like that, and how you might do log cultivation. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, well, shiitake on logs is, you know, one of the first cultivation practices dating back a few thousand years, and it's still a popular practice um, for good reason because it is pretty consistent. Um as our as our uh, lion's manes, but shiitake is just it's been so tried and true, and there's so much written about it. I mean, that's a great intro. Uh, the skills, it's the exact same skills and concepts to do to do it for any other species. Uh, say lion's mane, you just want to make sure you match the right kind of wood. Um, Cornell uh, University actually put out a really great resource a couple years ago called Best Management Practices for Shiitake Log Cultivation in the Northeast. And even for someone like you down down south, um, the same practices would apply. You just need to have be a little bit more concerned with the humidity and keeping them moist when they're fruiting and stuff like that. Um, but I think the, some of the best practices, so even there, um, what you want to be thinking about with all the cultivation stuff is you just want to be considering what the fungus needs, what I like to call the five fungal needs. So they need food, water, air, um, a good little shelter and habitat. And you want to match everything to to uh, of those in those uh, requirements to their niche. So with log cultivation, 
what the fung, what you're ultimately trying to do is get mycelium in some form. The mycelium is the root system of the fungus. It's actually what comprises the mushroom. The mushroom is condensed mycelium. It's kind of like, uh, little microscopic threads. And that's a, it's a whole, it's like a, it's a bunch of stem cells. It's all self-replicating. And you want to get some amount of mycelium underneath the bark to the cambium. That's sort of your goal. So there's a lot of ways to do that. A lot of people just drill holes and put what are called plug spawn, little dowels covered in a little bit of mycelium down into that hole, and that gets mycelium below the cambium. But you're not getting a lot of mycelium per hole. A better practice, which is outlined in that Cornell um, pamphlet, PDF, is you drill even a bigger hole, and then you get, say, sawdust spawn, basically mycelium growing on sawdust, which you can you can make your own. Um, I sort of just really briefly described it in that, that jar thing I was talking about, sure. or you could buy it from Field and Forest. Um, and then you get a tool called a palm inoculator that fills up, uh, basically you stab this tool into the sawdust, it fills a shaft, with the sawdust mycelium, and then you put that over the hole and use a little plunger thing built into the palm inoculator, and it pushes lots of mycelium into that hole. So you get way more mycelium per hole. Um, it's way more cost-efficient compared to plugs. And you can do as many holes as you like, although it's a bit labor-intensive. Um, you can do a really large hole. Um, you can Another technique is you cut wedges, you know, V-shaped wedges, and just pack that full of the sawdust bond and, put, and screw down the cap back on top of it. So Again, there's just any way that you want to get mycelium down there. It doesn't really matter. The, the most important thing is that the log type matches what the fungus is known to eat. Shiitake, uh, hands down, prefers oak, but it will grow on a lot of different types of woods, maples, alders, um, you know, many other types of hardwood. But oak is just shown to taste the best, produce the best tasting mushrooms and yield the highest. Um, and you want the mush, the, ideally the tree felled in the spring when the sugars are in the wood and not so much in the leaves or in the buds. And also, ideally, a tree, say, grown in the open as opposed to in the dark canopy. So in the open, it'll have a denser cambium with more sugars. And all that stuff is outlined in the Cornell Protocol, so those are a little bit more technical details. But once you get the mycelium into the log, um, you set it up to incubate, basically meaning let it just rest while the mycelium grows through that cambium, sort of colonizes it, um, consumes those sugars. And then anywhere from a year with shiitake, anywhere from a year to two years later, you're going to soak that log in a pond or a big soaking tank to give it a big flux of water. That's sort of the missing ingredient, the missing step that most people don't know or don't do. So you need to soak them in water to give them all this extra, um, well, water, which is what they need to fruit. Soak them for a day, then pull them out, and then stand them upright, and then hopefully they'll fruit in a week. And if they don't, then that means they just might need to rest a little bit longer, so you set them back down for a few more months. And it doesn't matter that you soaked it. It doesn't hurt them or nothing. Cool. Now I have a ton of, around me of live oak, and I don't know how if you've ever worked with that stuff, but it makes like you know white oak or red oak look like pine. It's so daggone hard. Uh, <laughs> do you think that would work well though for for shiitakes? Um, You know, I haven't worked with it, and I don't know if it's addressed in that say Cornell book. They, what's great about that that uh, that pamphlet is they just they made a real scientific study of it, and they compared a lot of variables, a lot of wood types. Okay. Um, I don't remember if live oak is in there, but you can certainly try. Um, this is one of these things about if you are cultivating um, on your own and producing your own spawn, most of the stuff is pretty cheap once you have the systems in place. Just making the logs a little bit labor-intensive and time-intensive. Um, I would say give it a shot. You know, if you have stumps or something like that, yeah, I would inoculate them. Certainly, I would I would not be surprised whatsoever if turkey tail, say, grew on your stumps. Um, it's one of the most powerhouse decomposing fungi. It's not really edible, produces a really sweet, delicious tasting tea. It's very medicinal. So it's good in soups and stuff like that. 
Um, but it will help break that down pretty quickly. I got quickly. a lot of stumps from these trees that were kind of past their happy state and were removed and I left the stumps. So turkey tail might be a great one because that's an incredible medicinal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you know, you can certainly try some of these other species. Um, you know, I have, um, you know, again, I'm not sure, I'm not sure about the shiitake, but if I, if I had the time and just, you know, spend an afternoon just drilling a bunch of holes, especially just get a, say, a, an angle grinder, if you can, because that just pops right into the wood really quickly and easily, not a lot of work on your end, and just pack that full of some different species of mycelium if you got lying around, or even the stuff from the wild, like your friend, you know, take, yeah. if you find a piece of, say, a log, and of course, if it's a, if it's a native fungus, that's even better, um, pack that full of some myceliated piece of wood, um, and that fungus might transmit into the, to the stump and take it over and help break it down at least and, and do something with it. What are some of your like favorite mushrooms from a standpoint, culinary or medicinal that maybe we've talked about some stuff that, you know, I mean, shiitake is a powerhouse, but are there some others that maybe people are a little less familiar with? Well, you know, there's, I mean, there's hunt, I think it's about 2000 mushrooms, uh, globally that they consider edible. I might have that number wrong, but some around there. So it's a good number, but not incredibly huge. But out of that, there's only about 30 that have been selected over time as ideal candidates for cultivation, um, usually because of ease of cultivation and just uh, taste. And so um, most of the ones you see in the store and things like that, or maybe even heard of over time, um, are the ones that I would point to in that in that sense. There are many that are ecologically important that I'm really fascinated by, but uh, maybe aren't as edible or, or medicinal. Um, my personal favorite mushroom is turkey tail. Um for, for some of the reasons I already said, it's powerhouse remediator. Uh, it's a really beautiful mushroom, in my opinion. It changes colors. It's If people have never seen it, it's sort of this small little rubbery shelf-like thing, but it has bands of colors. kind of looks like a turkey tail. Um, and But it is very, very medicinal. It's highly revered, actually, in Asia, where it's been used for, for decades as a chemotherapy adjunct. Um, easy to cultivate. Grows on all kinds of woods. Um, so it's, just a, it's a go-to mushroom in that sense. Lion's mane is great, as you said. It is. It is pretty consistent, um, indoor wise, especially. It's really easy to cultivate lion's mane. Very delicious. Great for your brain. It's basically the brain mushroom. Um, can break down the plaque associated with Alzheimer's. Um, tastes like crab. Has a texture like crab. I really like the oysters, even though they are kind of common. Um, I think they are quite delicious, and also again, they're so easy to grow. Um, you know, some of the other ones that are perhaps a little bit overlooked that I like. Um, are say like piopino or what are known as shimeji. Um, these are little smaller cap and stock mushrooms, just brownish chestnut brown. Um, they have a nice flavor and appearance, um, easy to cultivate, but just not as popular. And maitake, I would say maitake is probably my favorite uh, edible mushroom. It's especially the wild form, as you know, but even the indoor stuff, um, it has this incredibly rich, you know, almost indescribable uh, flavor complexity and is also incredibly medicinal. It's it's up there with shiitake and another mushroom that's not edible, but medicinal called reishi. And those three mushrooms are considered adaptogens, basically incredibly potent um, natural medicines that help bring your body into homeostasis. Very, very cool, man. So where can people go to get your book and learn more about your work? Well, the so I have two websites. Um, RadicalMycology.com is the blog, and that's where I primarily post um, some writings and things. Uh, I do courses um, around the country and actually been up to Canada a number of times, so sort of around the continent. Um, 
and you can go there. There's, uh, you can see the link for the cultivation courses. I don't have any scheduled in the, at the moment, but I'm soon to in the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to be doing a whole book tour actually across the country, uh, this fall. And I'll be doing, um, cultivation courses around the country and speaking engagements and things. So people should definitely check out there. Um, you can sign up for the email list to hear about that. And of course, sign up for the courses once they are announced. Um, and then the the book um, is available at the publisher's website, which is uh, chthaeus dot com. So chthaeus dot com, kind of a funny word. Um, and the book is there, available. And actually, uh, tomorrow evening, Thursday, I don't, I'm not sure when this is coming out, or also on the 28th, um, I'll be doing a free webinar. Um, and so if you go to Radical Mycology, you can see that there, the links to sign up for a webinar, not on tomorrow's cult, uh, excuse me, fungal e- ecology. And on 28th, I'm focusing on fungal cultivation and all these applications I've been alluding to. So it'll go a lot more dense with photos and things like that. Um, so that'll give you a taste of what's in the book. Um, if you go to the Cathayas website, you can see the table of contents and some chapter samples, um, read the description, et cetera. Well, very cool. And on, as far as the webinar, um, you said the one that's tomorrow is on the ecological footprint, and then the other one is what day? The 28th, um, April 28th, Thursday. Um, these are both at 6 p.m. Pacific, so 9 p.m. Eastern. Okay. And uh, there, there'll be about an hour and a half, maybe up to two hours, depending on the Q&A and stuff. They're free. Um, so, And I'm going to be uh, packing them full of information, so it'll be a good download of a lot of this stuff. Um, for folks that are new to it, especially the the applications, I'll be talking about sort of historical context, contemporary, and then projecting a bit into the future where where I think things are heading. That, that's very cool, and this show will be out about 20 minutes after we're done, which we're almost. Oh. <laughs> uh, so people can make uh, tomorrow's webinar and and the cultivation one. That's that's one I'm really excited about because I like to grow stuff and eat it. And uh, mushrooms are one of the things I like to eat with just about any meal that I would ever uh, put together. Well, anyway, Peter, man, thank you for uh, for joining us today and explaining uh, just how awesome uh, this stuff is. And uh, you are always welcome to come back on the show at any time. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. Yeah, it's time just flew by. It's always great chatting with you. You're so knowledgeable. So. Well, I, I, <laughs> I think in this case, you're the one with the knowledge in this, this subject set. But anyway, um, again, I really appreciate you being here with us, folks. The, uh, the website, uh, radicalmycology.com, uh, and Cathayas, I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, Peter, but yeah. Cathayas.com. I'll have links to both of those in the show notes today, and you might want to get by and, uh, get information on those webinars and attend them. And again, Peter, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Well, that was great stuff from Peter, as always. As we wrap up here, guys, I want to remind you uh, that you can help support this show by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. And if you do that, you'll get so many discounts, it will more than pay for your membership. You have my word on that. Well, if you use them, you have my word on that. Sometimes I hear from people who go, I don't even bother taking the discounts. I'm like, that's why they're there. That's why I worked hard to negotiate them for you. So check out the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade and consider becoming a member today and support the show at about 18.3 cents per episode.
Next up, I want to remind you, if you want to do business with other members of our community, consider checking out the TSP Business Directory at tspbiz.com. give you an idea of how many cool businesses are on that directory. I give you one of them every day. Today's is Schaefer Select Coins. They provide rare numismatic coins and currency. They're located in central Pennsylvania, or you can visit their online store through their link at the TSP Directory. I'll have a link to them today in today's show notes. And again, you can find the directory at tspbiz.com. Uh, with that wrapped up, I do want to remind you one other way you can help support our show. It's so simple. It's so easy. It doesn't cost you nothing. All you got to do is next time you're going to buy something from Amazon, before you do, go to tspaz.com. And we'll redirect you to the front page of Amazon through our affiliate link, and whatever you buy, we'll get our little Amazon commission for it. That means you can literally help us by simply using a domain that actually has less letters in it than Amazon.com. Therefore, you can actually do less than you normally would and help support the show. So please consider doing that. With that, I want to talk about our closing song today. Um, I'll tell you what, I, I want, I, I've been just decided, you know, that sometimes they give you like these deep, meaningful songs and stuff, and every once in a while I just want to give you some fun music. Just, just fun, especially old fun music, like songs they don't really make music like anymore. How about Eddie Rabbit and Driving My Life Away? I recently did a, a song by Leroy Par Parnell called On the Road for all you guys that are truck drivers and things like that that spent a lot of time behind the wheel listening to the podcast. Got a lot of you guys saying thanks. That was a cool song to be driving. I think you'll really like this one, especially you truck drivers. This is uh, this is 70s country when 70s country was actually 70s country. And it's a fun song. It's an up-tempo song. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember to keep your questions, comments, concerns coming to me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. Again, TSPC in the subject line. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 